I'm going to do it next year. Yeah, I'll get around to it next time. I'm just too tired from work. This is the place to get motivated, inspired, focused, and learn some new game. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Work It Like a Job. My name is Michael Dean, and welcome. We are back with another episode, and we've got a great one lined up for you today. We are joined by none other than Scotty Baldwin. Sir, Scotty, how are you? I'm well, sir. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Man, thank you for coming. Now, for some of those who follow uh, my other podcasts, specifically the Prince podcast, you remember Scotty from the Prince podcast, and that was a classic one. I still get people emailing or messaging me like, what, what was Scotty talking about with Prince at the end? And, I, and I'm like, man, well, maybe one day he'll get into that. But uh, so definitely a lot of the listeners know who you are and you have a huge following as it is. And so I'm blessed and appreciative of you for spending some time with me today, Scotty. I appreciate you. And that people come up to me at, at shows and they'll say, especially uh, revolution shows, and they'll say, hey, that podcast was great. They always single that podcast out oh, as, nice. as being one that was informative and yet and and uh, a pleasant to listen to as well. Well, man, that's uh, you know, it was it was a pleasure of mine. And, and let me say too, and specifically for this podcast, you know, I look at Scotty, and I'm also going to shout um, Dave Hampton out as well. Uh, I always look at these two guys as really sort of uh, opening a lot of doors for me, whether they know it or not. I think I think they do know. As we had a conversation, but I'm very appreciative of you know you guys sort of trusting me and. Uh, just speaking with me and sharing because it really opened a lot of opportunities for me. And so I'm always appreciative of that. Well, and and we appreciate you. And because, uh, because there's been a transformation in the last three years since uh, Prince left us, uh, that, that people go, things go in waves and now we're, people are over that grieving stage, I think, and they're into the, to a celebration stage and they're into new music and they're into discovering the excellence of of Prince and what he brought to a lot of people and so um, it's there's a natural uh, a bigger transformation happening underneath everything or or, or it's so much so that we don't really detect it and I think we're in that excellence phase where we're really discovering how excellent he was yeah and that sort of leads us into some of the conversation I want to have today with you uh, is to speak of that level of excellence excellence or the spirit of excellence because uh, you know, looking at your career so far and all of the great people that you have worked with, you know, I, I feel like it really sort of starts with, you know, uh, being around Prince and working with him for many years. And I can imagine a lot of other artists uh, look at Prince as the high watermark uh, I, in, in the field, right? Uh, yes. And and the, the way I can get that across to people is, as I always say, that Prince would have been on the, the favorite artist list of uh, of artists themselves. That's always a, a good thing when you can have high level artists say, "Well, I'm a big f- a fan of this person." And um, but it's not just that; it's that the diversity of the artists who considered Prince their favorite artist. Because you would have had, I, I mean, I haven't heard, but if you ask somebody like the composer John Williams, who does all the movie music oh, for Spielberg, I, I love I, John I, Williams. I, I, I bet. I bet Prince would probably be on his top 10. And then you ask somebody in the in the classical f- uh, music field and you ask somebody in the punk and you ask people in heavy rock and you ask people in funk of course and they, they Prince showed up on their on their list of of favorites. And so th- I think that speaks a lot about not only about Prince but about his his universal appeal to people but how good he was at what he did for that many different types of people. And it also speaks to, I mean, so you can have all of that too, but, you know, at the end of the day, Scotty, you have to deliver. 
right? Like <laughs> you yes. have to sort of meet that and beat that. And that speaks a lot that you do that. So yeah, that may open the door for you to get in there, but obviously the work itself uh, has to be there. And I wanted to ask you this, I don't know if we ever mentioned this before, was there ever a level of like, <clears throat> um, was there a pressure I should say like, okay, yeah, you, you, you did some Prince things and now, uh, you know, here's another artist. I'm going to just throw out a name. I don't know where we'll fall in the timeline, but say like a, a Madonna or something like that. Like, is there a pressure to like, man, are they expecting me to just be this whole thing? Um, are, do, do you ever get pressured or do you ever feel nervous going to some of these jobs? Um, I believe that the pressure usually it mounts in the beginning because I, I don't have any experience with an, a certain artist. Say Madonna, I didn't have any experience with her when I went to meet her and work with her. But um, it's usually loaded up on the front end and the pressure is something I'd put on myself mm. because I, I found that at the end of the day, most artists uh, with whom I've worked anyway, the they're expecting less than I can deliver, right? So it's a it's a, a classic case of of um, of sort of needless worry up that it's going to be harder than it really is because and the reason for that is, is that Prince expected a lot of people around him and he put you through these tests. I don't think they were conscious. I don't think he was saying, well, I'm going to test this person. I'm going to test them this way. It's just sort of he just moved at a fast pace and you had to keep up and you had to remain excellent. And when uh, when you didn't do that, you sort of you sort of made the decision easy for him to just move on. Mm -hmm. And somebody like Madonna, she didn't, uh, at least what I was asked to do for her in 2003 wasn't, I didn't have to be as excellent as I was and just came off being for a long time with Prince. So it, it's, they're usually asked less than, than what is uh, not only required, but, um, it's less is asked from, from, uh, what, what is, is necessary it's just not a lot of it isn't necessary because they don't have that high level of attention to detail that prince had wow okay um w was there another artist oh and, and, and again let me be clear you don't have to name certain people i can understand that how things would work so i don't want to compare people uh and i know how that can be when you you work with certain artists and stuff but was it was there another artist that was if i could say uh just as demanding uh as a prince was <sighs> In, in and and I don't mind naming names because I I would never do anything in a derogatory way sure. anyway because I think I believe in sort of the celebrating of of excellence and that's sort of what this episode is about and um so everyone has their um their bailiwick their area of expertise or specialty as it were and and so different artists ask for different things um, Lady Gaga certainly was uh, was coming up on her she was she was just learning how to um, uh, be excellent at that time she had it in her but she didn't have the sustained excellence for that amount of time in 2009 and 10 when i was with her so um she demanded a lot of focus that was all about focus for me that because it was such a heavy schedule and she was such a hard worker that that it, i had to have constant focus it, easily as difficult as it was with prince because prince would we would get breaks um when we were working it was full on and when we weren't it was full off Okay. Right, because he needed his time. Lady Gaga always seemed to be working. She was always in a state of working or waiting to work again. So that was a really intense year. So that that was the challenge with her was focus. I had to remain focused at all times. We had crazy schedule really late and really early and TV shows. And then we go right into a, an arena show. And there was mm. 
that was demanding in its own way. So every artist has a different demand and it's just meeting that demand and actually checking that artist to see if they are, if they're um, going to make people culpable for, for that kind of excellence. Are a lot of these artists, um, as hands on, like how hands on are a lot of these artists with you guys, you know, with you specifically and some of the other tech people? I mean, are they just more focused on, I guess, the performance part and they rely on you to make sure the sound is right? Or are they really like listening and like, no, I mean, I, I, you can hear Prince do it on from stage. <laughs> at yes, time, yes. But I'm just curious of other artists. Do they normally do that type of thing? Well, again, they're all different, but um, but. So it depends on each artist and how much they did themselves. Um, the artist with whom I'm working now, Wang Li Hong, he uh, writes everything, produces every, records everything, produces it all, mixes it himself, wow. um, directs his own uh, music videos. And so he knows exactly what he wants at all times. There's never, it's never this nebulous sort of unspoken thing like, well, we're not sure what he wants. He's, he knows what he wants and, and you're there to help him get it. Other people have different people in those roles to define that. So either there'll be a show director that says, Hey, we need a, we need help getting from this song to that song. Is there anything you can do in lights or is there anything you can do in sound or playback or something that'll get us to that next thing? Or we need more time for a wardrobe change. So we need to fill some time. Does anybody have any ideas? Or, or maybe it's the producer of the record is coming in during rehearsals and then I'll work with them. So it's, it's different with every artist, but yeah, they all have something at which they shine. It's just that, um, certain artists, a, f a few in my career, high level ones, they, they seem to have, um, shine in more areas and a little bit brighter. You know, I think that's why they've made themselves into what they are. Okay. Now, and I don't want to mispronounce the, the gentleman's name because I will do that. Tell me the name of the, the guy you well, work with. Well, his, his uh, name in, in America, we call him Li Hong Wang, L-E-E-H-O-M-W-A-N-G. In China, they uh, turn the surname around. So I would be Baldwin Scotty. And so uh, he's known professionally as Wang Li Hong. Wang and Li. he is, yeah. And if, if people haven't heard of him and not a lot of people in America in this market have heard of him, but he's an American guy, grew up in, I believe, Rochester, New York, um, uh, made his way over to Taiwan. And he's, so he's an American citizen and he, he's really huge uh, in China. He's the biggest pop star in China for sure, if not uh, all of Asia. And, um, and so he uh, contacted me and he knew the level to which uh, I was used to working and he has that level. And you know how you were talking about earlier that excellence seeks excellence. You just you run out of people to go to or, or actually it makes it easier because then there are just few mm. uh, fewer from whom to choose. And so uh, he sought me out and we we um, I'm working with him now and it's a it's a blast. It's a lot of flying. I fly back and forth to China every week uh, once we get started. So I commute to China weekly for shows. And um, and it's great to work on a level with all uh, Berkeley grad musicians. All of his musicians are either doctored or, or, or um, graduates of Berkeley or a music school like that. So it's, I had to, I had to brush up. I had to get excellent at different things at which I hadn't been used to um, working like Italian musical terms. And these guys speak on a different level. It's a different mm -hmm. level of musicianship, right? So and and Lee Home is very um, he's excellent and he's excellent at different. Uh, I, I don't want to say I think it's unfair to say he you know, anyone reminds me of anyone else. But he certainly his excellence at different instruments reminds me of Prince. And as I said, Prince, uh, I might have said that on, on your podcast before. Prince was smart. He didn't do things at which he wasn't good. Like I think I maybe I may have said he never picked up a trumpet. It's probably because mm -hmm. he couldn't play a trumpet. But um, but Lee Home. Is, has mastered violin and piano and guitar and vocal performance. So he's he's a 
and and he dances really well. So it's it's um, it's a testament to uh, the the width and and depth of his the and breadth of his of his uh, study. See, I find it amazing because I had never heard of him before until you had mentioned to you know we have talked I've talked to you before and you mentioned about him, and I, it's just it reminds me of like this is such a huge world like there are superstar you know cats out here that we just may not have heard of here in America but that doesn't mean like the next guy or there isn't somebody else that is on those levels of greatness that are not out there and I I just find it fascinating and the fact that and you're we, working with them like it's like wow it's just, people will and, find and we, they need to we and we pass them every day it, it physically we drive past them and we walk past them every day and people mm. are excellent at things that we don't know just because it's in the music of uh, excuse me in the world of music right um, it doesn't mean we're not passing people on the street every day who are excellent at what they do. It, it's um, and a lot of times people get in trouble because they they get so good at something they work themselves. I, I don't like the term, but they people say they're overqualified for something. And um, I had an artist who um, told me a few years ago. They uh, she told me, "Well, you're you, we know you're overqualified to work here and work with us." And I I didn't I said I corrected her right away and I said no, I'm not overqualified. We I just bring a lot to the table. You know, I can do anything you want. What what would you like me to do? Because um, that's that's stating that we don't have enough to pay you. That's what that means. You're <laughs> overqualified means we don't have enough to pay you what you're what you deserve. But that has to that goes to the agreement. If you agree to work for something, you you have to. Uh, and Dave Dave Hampton can speak on this. He's the expert at all this. Is that you're you're worth what you're what you accept. And and so once you make a deal, you still give all the excellence. I've never worked um, less hard for anyone because I was making less or more, mm. right? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. I, I just, you always bring what you do and you just bring a wider toolkit, a, a bigger toolkit with more experience. And you, you've seen every situation over and over again. So a lot of the people on my resume, they, um, I didn't have to reach as far in the toolkit, but I just had to reappropriate my own challenges. I, I like that you said that. You, and I, <laughs> you basically said, I still gave 200% even though I was getting paid you know getting paid 100% like I still was doing what I do whether or not mm -hmm. what I negotiated for <laughs> I, 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 it stands out to me because it makes me think of sometimes when we you know uh, have our jobs and there'll be times where there's some employees at a job that just they're known for going hard they they work hard they'll exceed what their job is to be right if, you know, you're just supposed to be this position but sometimes you do this position and you kind of will dabble into that you bring these other skills to the table regardless of necessarily that's what they're paying you for um I, i'm gonna going into that because i kind of wanted to speak about work ethic as well <clears throat> and i wanted to put it frame it in the terms of two different things one you know both of us are fathers have families uh i I am not struggling, but I am dealing with trying to instill the importance of work ethic to my son. He's he's uh, 11 years old. Mm. And so I'm curious, you know, you would have what I would like to see as a non-traditional job, right? Um, yes. You're not, you're not going to a nine to five down the street or in the next town. You are traveling across the world and doing different things. And I'm sure your off times are different. What are what what could you or what do you um hope to I don't know how 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 would I say this? What kind of work ethic 
are you showing, you know, your kids? I don't know. I can't remember if you have a son or a daughter or both. I, I have two. I have two daughters. Two daughters. Um, what are they sort of seeing from their dad in terms of his work? Do they understand what you do? They do. Okay. They do. And I, I try and involve um, my wife, Christina, and my daughters. Yes. I, I try and bring them out to see what I do and let them. I think it's about communication. It's just about letting them know that this is non-traditional. But, you know, the non-traditional is turning traditional now. Mm. People work mm. out of their out of their houses and out of their homes. And they yeah. they people will there's all sorts of it takes all types to make a world and it takes all types of ways to make that world work. So, um, nothing is just a 40 hour show up and, and punch the clock kind of thing anymore. It's, it's very different. The, the work, the workforce is changing. It's changing over time. And so we need to, it, it all depends on approach. I always try and instill because I'm gone a lot. Um, I have to make the time that I'm home, uh, rational and reasonable and make it count. So my wife and I do a good job because she's in the arts as well. It's, we sort of have to balance that out in, in how we, we trickle things down to them and try and have life lessons in the fact that we, not all, not everyone travels as much as we do. And, or as a family, we're able to travel because I can cash in miles to go do things. And, and so we can travel the world as a family. And that's something that's a privilege we have just because of the hard work and time in the air that I have been doing. Right. So okay. it's, it, it's ethic is a, it's an interesting thing though, to me, because <clears throat> if there, some people can relate and I was trying to relate to everyone when I speak And so say there's someone listening to this, who's a engineer, right? Mm -hmm. They, they, they press play because they know what I've done in my career. And so they want to take a listen and, but they, they think that there's no relation there because they're, there's nothing to relate because they're maybe they're, they're at a house of worship or they're working at a sound company or they're just getting started or maybe they mix at home and they want to mix live, right? Or they're, maybe they're doing a theater mixing thing and they want to get better and tour and it's how to relate to that person, how to, how to have us relate. And I think in, in work ethic, it's just doing the best you can without, but there's a limit to that too, because you can't. You can't outwork. There's a principle. I don't know if it's in Taoism. That doesn't sound right. There's something that says never outshine the master, right? Right. <laughs> that, that might sound familiar, but yeah, I'm not yes. sure no, where I it's. Heard that. And she, it, I found that out of experientially that if I work harder than an artist or I bring things up to them that say, oh, this is cool, but you could do this and it would be better. You do that in front of people or you put them on the spot by saying, you could do this better and you're going to work yourself right. Your, your good work ethic is going to work you right out of a job in no time. It, right. it, well, so there, it, there's a, you know, I guess what it is, there is a time and place for everything. I yeah. think if you try to do that and you, you're not conscious enough to understand sort of your place in the totem pole with other people around that person. Yes. Yeah. You're going to talk yourself out of it, but I, you know, maybe there's when it's just you two and you, you, you know, that person enough to, Oh, I can suggest this to him it's not going to take it like i'm trying to dethrone this person or something you know yes I mean? but but that's a learn sort of thing to, to, it is you know to know how to do that yeah i did that wrong with a with a duran duran i i at the end of a tour i was asked exactly i was really respected on that tour by the guys and, and i got that position to mix them because of what i did what i had done and and th the fact that three of the four of those guys uh, excuse me three out of the five of those guys were really big prince fans and so uh, we did a year tour and then at the end they wanted, they collectively asked for my assessment of the tour and I did a really, um, I still have it somewhere uh, on a word doc or something 
from 2003, where I did a, an assessment of the tour, what needed to be improved, what could be better. And I was very candid about it, but I wasn't very tactful. I just mm-hmm. didn't spell it out like I was sitting next to them. I spelled it out as if I were across from them, telling them. And so I did that wrong. That was everything in there was really valid. And, um, and I've heard, I heard from uh, several of those guys since then, and they said, hey, thanks for that. That really helped us. But it wasn't, I didn't do it appropriately. I didn't instill that sort of, um, I didn't uh, instantiate that in the, in the right way. It wasn't like, for instance, this and this and this. I didn't do it the right way. Uh, since then, I've learned to work with artists and sort of, I, who really was, was great at it was Maxwell. He was, I, I, I'm sure that he's still as, as good at it today. He's supportive. Maxwell was a supportive artist who... Uh, took the people around him and wanted them to be better, and it it made every it made the whole thing better. It was great. Hmm. He was always I still always did suggestions in private. He would come into my office on breaks on, on my little mix office in the corner at, at Center Staging in L.A. and and he say so what do you hear and I said well I hear this and what if you did this and this is in the same key and I got to play that role and not step on anyone and then his he would make suggestions when they came back. And then they would be his ideas, which I didn't mind. That's that's the old good idea, glad I thought of it theory, right? <laughs> right. You tell someone something, they say, that good idea, glad I thought of it. And But it, but it worked, and it worked well with uh, the musical director and the band, and that's the, the two artists. Maxwell is, I met Dave Hampton on that tour. So okay. Okay. When, like minds find each other, and it's just a matter of putting that energy into each other and not, not, not having anything supersede each other and not do it for – you know the reason of ego. It's it's always to make the the quality better. Yes, and it made me think of Maxwell. I remember seeing an interview from him. This might have been a few years ago, but he was telling a story that he was so like taken aback because I think it was Prince and maybe Harry Belafonte or something, and he, and they were like sort of expressing to him like how much they appreciated his art and they wanted him to keep going, like. And he was just like, wow, like I never really thought that uh, these guys that are so like, you know, I look up to them and they yes, were like yes. paying attention and, and wanting me to continue on with the art. And that always struck me when I heard him say that. Well, the the, the, the best compliment Mac, I told Maxwell, the best compliment you, you can expect from Prince was when after there was a, an award show that Maxwell performed at the award show and Prince was in the front row and Prince caught me at the soundboard. I was with Maxwell at the time. Prince caught me at the soundboard and said, he said, watching your boy, meaning Maxwell, watching your boy is like watching home movies, <laughs> which, which is a, that's a huge compliment. Right, right. Wow. He was basically saying here he is in his infancy of his career with the same kind of blown out Afro that Prince had when he was mm-hmm. a kid. Right. Mm-hmm. So just, and that's a, a truly a, a Prince type quote, you know, watching your boy is like watching home movies. That's a great compliment. Because wow. it was, he was reminded of himself and how how hard he worked. Maxwell is a hard worker too, though. He's somebody who came prepared, ready to ready to act and ready to get things done. Yes, yes. Um, just looking over, we jump around just a little bit. I'm only mm-hmm. asking you this question. Uh, one, I'm just and in a spirit of fun, but it's not necessarily a fun sort of reason why he's in the news right now. But. <clears throat> Uh, I'm just curious. You worked with uh, R. Kelly. I mean, R. You can't escape the fact that everyone's talking about that. Uh, what was your recollections of being on that tour? I think it was what 2001. It, it is the well. The first thing it always um, that I remember about working with Rob on that tour is that it uh, the 9/11 attack happened 
as we were on that tour. Oh, so that's okay. something I always jump back to that um, because everyone remembers where they were when the planes hit. And I was in, uh, I believe we were in Belgium or somewhere. We were, we had just flown over and, and we're setting up for the first rehearsal uh, of that tour. And, um, and we got the news and we put the, put the, uh, because to us it was three or four in the afternoon, you know, it was six or seven hours later, five, six, seven hours later. So we, um, put, put it up on the big screen and saw the second plane hit. So I always think of Rob and that, and, and, huh. and, uh, flying, flying scares him. And so he was, I think at the time already on the Queen Elizabeth, uh, uh, QE2 or whatever. He was, he was already on his way over mm. on the boat to start the tour. And, um, so I sort of, re I recollect that as being a, a part of that sort of era with Rob. And, you know, I, I don't know whether I, I'm happy about this. I think I'm read indifferent, but I had less, almost less um, communication with any artist with Rob as with any artist. I didn't really, I didn't have to interface with him much. He didn't, he didn't show up for rehearsals. He didn't show up for uh, sound check ever. Hmm. I never did a sound check where he was there. Um, he would he would show up usually a little late um, or a lot late, uh, but he would show up and um, and just take the mic from the stage manager and walk on stage and do the show, and then he'd be gone. So um, I didn't really have to interface much with with uh, Rob, but he. Um, so I guess you know he's got his own he's got his yeah. own um, fish to fry now, but um, it, it's. It, I, but I believe all that stuff sort of happened on the tour that I was on. <clears throat> and so mm. that's not a comfortable thing. And, and, um, it, I don't know, he, as far as excellence, I, I didn't feel a lot of ex, a ton of excellence from him on that tour. doesn't mean he's not a hard worker and not good at his art, but he clearly, there's been a divide in his, uh, personal life and he's, right. and, and not able to really separate those. You know, somebody smarter than me once told me that it's, it's called the music business. It's two words. They're equally as important, but either you're engaged in one or the other, and that's it. Mm. So either you're engaged in the music or you're engaged in the business end, but nothing else. And I've sort of tried to live by that and just um, keep things one or the other, and that's all. And and clearly Rob didn't didn't do that, so he's uh, he's paying for that now. Yeah, I mean it's it's such a touchy subject. The, the only thing I thing I do know for certain about R. Kelly, and this is purely just as uh, someone who has bought some of his music over the years, I can't deny he does not, he, he can write a song, you know, he knows how to write a hit song or, oh, yeah. you know, so uh, all that other stuff is, you know, it is what it is, uh, but I just wanted to ask that. Um, yeah, it, well, he, well, Rob and I put, I put R. Kelly and, and Kanye in the same sort of, hmm. um, not, not for their personal lives, but for, I, as artists, I put them in the same um, group because everyone says what a genius Kanye West is. When I listen to his stuff, I don't really hear it. Now, th that's just because I, I just don't get him the same way I didn't get Bowie. Like I've never, I've listened to a lot of David Bowie stuff. My cousin is a huge fan of Bowie. We've talked about Bowie and and the influence Bowie had, but I just, it just never clicked with me. So uh, as much as I respect Kanye West and what he's done, I don't have, um, uh, as an artist with me, it didn't click. Same as with Bowie and, and Rob kind of the same thing. I, I mixed him and I liked his good songs. and I know what a hard worker he is. And I know he's super musical, even though he's not a learned person. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I can't speak on Kanye. I've never worked with him, but, um, 
but I put it in the same thing where I just, I, do, I don't get it, but everyone else says they're geniuses. So I sort of leave it at that. <laughs> so I've had many of arguments with people <laughs> over this mm. because I will say to me, Kanye West is a genius in what he does. Uh, mm. I don't say that he, I mean, I think to me, and, and, and I've done hip hop production, rap production, you know, many years and understand what that is. And I just think anyone who can make that type of music and do it at a level that he's doing, that's a genius. Now, I'm not saying he's John Williams, you know, we mentioned earlier or Prince or that, but for what he does and in that particular genre, I can't deny like he has written and done dope work. Like, it, it yeah, and maybe I haven't, you know. and maybe I haven't listened enough. Um, and that certainly could be the case as well. And I haven't discovered him. Um, but, uh, but not everyone uh, resonates with, uh, with everyone. Yeah, that, that's, that's very true. I mean, there, you know, I'll say this, uh, and I've said this before, you know, the Beatles, I have the utmost respect for the Beatles and, and I understand what they mean to the culture and to the world, blah, blah, blah. But I just personally never grew up listening to them. So I don't have like, I don't really, there doesn't, the songs don't necessarily mean what they mean to everybody else only because I just, you know, people were down this path we was on this other path, but it doesn't mean that I wouldn't say that to me, I, I would give up that they're geniuses. I understand. I've read enough, heard enough. I do know some of the bigger songs, but they don't mean that way to me only because I just grew up on other things, but I can see why they are special. Like, you know what I mean? Like I understand why they are. It, Go ahead. It, it blew my mind when somebody told me that the Beatles, the released Beatles catalog is less than 10 hours. That, wow. <laughs> that, that blew my mind because can you imagine saying that same thing about Prince? Right. I mean, not even close. I mean, less than 10 hours. Now that doesn't mean Paul McCartney and wings and that doesn't mean George Harrison solo stuff or Ringo Starr. It doesn't mean separately Lennon stuff, but I mean, together as the Beatles, it was less than 10 hours, which is crazy. You can do that in an afternoon. You can take in the whole thing in one afternoon. And, um, but it doesn't surprise me if it if there if your chips were meant to pass in the night and not meet. I understand that we don't all gravitate towards, and it depends on where we are in our life mm -hmm. and how we ingest an artist. Clearly, uh, Prince fans take Prince very personally, and they have their own journey and where they are right now, three years after the fact. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, you know, it's it's all about the impact of things. Like, you know, it may not have the ten, it may be the ten hours, or whatever. But I mean, that impact may hit you more than that or you know what i mean so it just it all depends yep. um but yeah i mean we all sort of judge our levels of greatness or genius by what we the rules we sort of set um going back to um the non-traditional job situation i was just curious <laughs> yeah <laughs> let the dogs oh, we'll out. have we'll have to start that over come here um, i'll let i'll let you start that over yep um, so going back to the non-traditional job question, um, I'm curious, like, um, because, I mean, you have a family, is there ever sort of the pressure of, you know, you're gone too much? Um, uh, I want to break from the kid. <laughs> I mean, it's things that we have to deal with as, as fathers and, and as having families, whether well, they're mother or fathers. How, how do you guys sort of juggle you know, um, raising the family and, and you guys are sometimes some separate. Well, because we, because Christina and I both come from 
either touring or performing background and we're oh. both self-employed, oh. it we have, we have a great benefit. It, it's not that one of us has a traditional job and the other doesn't. So we understand there's, and it's, I think it's all about communication with each other and then with our children and, and letting them know what we do and that it's important what we do when we bring, um, it's important to bring art into people's lives, whether it's from a technical support uh, perspective as I do, um, or Christina as a performer and director and theater and opera singer. So it's, it's important to bring that to people's lives because we have a lot, especially nowadays, we have a lot to escape. Hmm. There's a lot of, of, we want, we put ourselves, art is sort of a recession proof, um, medium because we all need artists. And I mean, can you imagine the world without art? It's really difficult to do. And so art is the relief. And I always said that Gaga, Gaga is, is part greatness and part timing. She was Lady Gaga came along right after the crash of 2008. And she came along to say, just dance going to be okay. You know, she, she all the, a lot of things she was saying in her music were what people needed to hear. So timing is everything. Right. And, um, and so we just try and let our girls know that it's all about communication. We just communicate with them and they're both, um, as you can imagine, we have a very artistic and creative household and they're singing all the time and performing. And, mm -hmm. and so, um, it's easy for them to understand why I'm gone and why Christine is gone when she has to do stuff out of town. And we just, um, keep things open and communicate. That's the only way to do it. I think we all, we all instinctively know that, that it's about communication, but it's harder to do, uh, it, it's, it's, it's easy to say and, and harder to do, but we seem to, ha what we have it works because we've, we've had it work for almost a dozen years now. And so we just, it's all about communicating the reason that we're gone and making the time that we're, we're, um, we're home valuable. Okay. Okay. Now, how long have you guys been married? Uh, coming up on 11 years. Wow. Congratulations. So it's, <laughs> thank you. And it, it's, um, it's very, um, uh, it's, it's very, it's, it's, people think that maybe, oh, being gone is good. You can get away and you can do your own <laughs> thing. But, but, um, to me, I, I, I'm, when I'm gone, I'm always somewhere where I, where I'd rather be somewhere else. Mm. I'd, I'd, I'd always rather be home. You know, that's a, not everyone can say that. I think I'm, uh, blessed to be able to say that because I always kind of want to be at home and want to be with my family, but, um, and not everyone feels that way. And it, and it does, there is time when I'm gone that there's m way more pressure on my wife to make the family work as a solo parent. Mm -hmm. And that's a, that's a big thing because a lot of people, some people have only have one parent. So how are you supposed to be in a creative venture in your life and try and be in a creative medium and you're the, a single parent, right? Right. Right. So that there's that too. There's, there are roadblocks. Everyone has their situation and some are harder to get around. Um, and it's, so it's a delicate balance. It's, it's really, there's no one prescriptive. This, I guess is what I'm trying to say. There's nothing prescriptive that works for everyone. Everything has to be an individual basis and we all have to find out how we can best navigate those waters. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's always tough, and that's kind of what I'm, you know, sort of getting at is like, you have a very unique, uh, you know, life uh, situation, which may be different from a lot of people. But it's, I think, there's always little things that you can kind of hear, but I think that are universal things, and I think that communication, as you spoke of, would probably work across the board, 
yes. no matter what your situation may be. Um, now look at it. Look yeah. at somebody like Prince, mm-hmm. um, because Prince didn't have uh, children, and and any woman in Prince's life, a wife or a relationship, was only a was probably secondary to his love of music, mm-hmm. right? So he had a what I would say is is um, a, a very unique situation where he was always engaged in the in music and the love of his life probably I'm guessing so being a partner to Prince I, I don't think would have been very easy it wouldn't mm-hmm. have been I mean I've never had a discussion with Manuela or Maite about that and um, and never will I'm sure but how to balance that with someone who's such a creative force and known worldwide as such how do you get that time out of them mm-hmm. you know that that's that's a that's something that because he had no competition, he could always do what he wanted when he wanted from when he was maybe eight to 18 or 19 years old. Well, that's, that's the thing. I mean, like, so to talk about balance, I mean, did, you know, I'm careful if I ask this, but I would imagine he could have maybe used a little more balance. 100% you know, in his life there. You know, obviously the music is so important and I get that, but, Again, there are other relationships or other things as people that we have to sort of have in our lives as well to, to equal things out sometimes. It's not that the um, that that would have brought balance. That's just my opinion, by the way. Mm-hmm. It, but it's not just that, just that that would have brought balance to his life. It would have also provided him with two things. Number one, uh, a relationship, the, the beauty of a relationship a long-term relationship or a marriage or something that, that ended up working for a long period of time, the, the benefit of that and family. But also it would have been good because it would have provided what he needed to, as an artist to write. Yes. Ar- you, artists mm-hmm. run out of things to write about. When they start to write about their car, you have to look out because that that's there's something – I'm not saying that everything has to be about your personal experience and certainly people can conjure up fictional elements of things that really speak to to people as truths in their life, right? Songs aren't true typically, but they are truths in people's lives. You can hear a good song Mm -hmm. and it can move you, Um, and but you're living someone else's fiction or a truth. I I just, there's been a lot of uh, focus recently on Freddie Mercury and and, uh, Queen and... uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, and th- there's a guy who wrote about his life. It's a, it's a, it's in almost every song when you listen to the songs that Mercury wrote, and people. But they are those songs have become truths in all of our lives as fans of that. And so, it, it family and balance, balance, I guess is the word. Balance uh, creates art as well, and it creates this um, pocket of art. And I always wished for Prince that he had that he would have let other people produce them or that he would have brought more artists in to record at Paisley Park with him or that he would have just said, come on up and record a record here for nothing. I'll just give you whatever you want. Uh, Have Adele come and record a record or have Alicia Keys come and record for nothing and bring in these sort of, you know, in Europe, they used to do these salons where you'd have painters and writers and authors and um, poets and musicians and uh, they all used to get together and drink and talk about art and and they used to have this cross-pollination of all these sort of arts that would come together and I, I always wish in the world that we had a little more of that now and I certainly think that that it would have been interesting at the very least to see Prince uh, pollinate his, his 
Hang on. No, you good. <laughs> it's um, I. I think it would have been interesting if Prince would have been able to pollinate his experiences with other people. Uh, that would have been interesting to see what that would have been like. Well, do you think that he was kind of doing that? I mean, because he had a lot of uh, younger musicians around him, you know, to the later part. Not necessarily, they may not have been known, you know, artists, but I don't know if he was more so of mentoring them, I guess maybe you would say. Well, this, I mean, this falls upon, now on, again on, I want to be clear that this is my opinion <laughs> and it's, it's, it's not word, but my opinion is that he always ran the relationships both personally mm -hmm. and professionally that he had, right? He was the shot caller. Okay. If you find out he was friends with Van Jones, you'd go, yeah, well, who was the, who was the person that dictated that relationship? Okay, he's friends with uh, a certain uh, uh, another musician or a, some. He was always the one that was looked at as the person that spoke about things, and the other person reacted to them. And that was gotcha. very typical, right? That's just the truth. I, I try and speak the truth, and how whoever and whatever it might hurt, that he was the shot caller in every relationship that he had with everyone, and that was good for him. It was. Um, and people felt alive and uh, to be in his presence and to breathe the air he was breathing, they felt alive, more alive. And as I said before, most people define uh, their interaction with Prince as the greatest thing that they had done in their life. Mm. That's Most people will say that. Mm -hmm. I, I was Prince's whatever, or I did this with Prince. And that and I'm not singling Prince out. There are a lot of artists um, in different creative uh, endeavors that is – People will hang everything in their life on the fact that they worked with that person. And um, I think we have to be careful of that. I once had a, for inspiration, I guess, I once brought a bust of Beethoven into rehearsal. We had a long rehearsal stretch at Paisley Park. And I bought a, brought a bust of Beethoven and it had it sitting next to my soundboard. Some people put pictures of their wife and kids or their, or their husband and their ch children, you know, in their work area. You do that in a cubicle. Yeah. yeah. And I had a, a bust of, I was single at the time, I brought a little bust of Beethoven. It was tiny, you know, it was, it was, but it was, it provided me with inspiration. I was listening to a lot of Beethoven uh, piano and violin sonatas back then. And Prince walked up and tilted it back toward himself and turned and said, what false idol are we worshiping today? <laughs> and it's funny because I think, I think that day he had a big uh, photo shoot in the, in the soundstage where he was posing and looking off to the side and doing all that. So it was sort of funny how uh, reciprocally <laughs> there was the, he was saying something he could have been saying it to himself. You know, we're, we're all, we all have inspiration. We all work with uh, inspiration in our life and that inspiration helps us get to excellence, right? right That's right. what provides the fuel for excellence mm -hmm. and not everything we do is excellent, but you can try. It's a, it's noble to try and be excellent. And um, so it's it's sort of you know we have to we just have to look for again balance i love that word it's probably my favorite word just balance just keep it balanced that, that, that was that sounded like prince doing the old uh do as i say not as i do yeah <laughs> the right. old black yeah. father <laughs> yes. uh yeah. so um oh the other thing i wanted to ask you about and i had a chance to actually actually i've seen you with them twice uh the revolution mm. Uh, I know you uh, working with. Do you, are you so you still are you still uh, doing shows with them when they're out? I, I am every everything I can. Um, uh, with with Wang Li Hong, <clears throat> we have a fairly aggressive schedule in the summer, and um, 
but I've done, I do everything I can with revolution. That's a real labor of love for me. And, um, uh, I care about those five very much and they, what they have done and what they're continuing to provide people. And, um, I know it comes from their heart. Everything comes from deep within them and the love that they had and still have for Prince. So it, it, there's just a feeling that you get when you're at a revolution show that I think for Prince fans is just, um, mm-hmm. uh, it's really ineffable. You know, it's, it's difficult to put into words. It's, uh, people are still affected very heavily and, and everyone involved in that, uh, project, uh, still gets emotional about it because it's just, the music is just that strong and they come from that era. The songs they do are just that impactful. You know, it's a, it's a, it's all killer, no filler on that set list. You know, there's nothing. It's it's trying to get the show down to two hours. <laughs> you know, it could be a three and a half hour show with them. So that I do everything I can with them, and um, uh, they start up again here pretty soon. So they're okay. all getting excited. Everybody's excited about that. And they're uh, I don't know if you're going to that, but I know they're going to be playing at the the celebration thing this yeah, year. Yeah, fortunately, I won't be there this oh. year. Um, I'll be in China at the time, but um, uh, I know that's a. a uh, that's a it's always healing and now i think it's more celebratory the the first mm-hmm. one i'm sure was was a, a, a sense of healing and this will be way more celebratory i think i look forward to that i think prince fans are gonna have a lot of a lot of fun at that yeah yeah to me the thing with the the revolution i always uh it's big i think for a prince fan you know when i, I saw him the first time they came to seattle it was just like uh you know <laughs> it was one i couldn't believe it you know it's just like man I've wanted to see these guys forever. And then you actually hear the show, feel it. And it was just like, it was beyond like, I was like, God, this is so good. And then the second time I saw them was a, a different sort of experience. Excuse me. Actually getting to sort of you know speak to them and, and, and hang out for a little bit. They have a very interesting thing where I, I think for a Prince fan, we, you know, seeing Purple Rain and that concert and just all those albums and what it means to us. It's almost as, and I think I've said this many times and I've said this to, to them, but it's like, they're like essentially like superheroes to us. And so mm-hmm. when you actually see them, it's just like, I know they're just like the most humblest of people. I know this now, but I couldn't help but not be a little like, ah, uh, you know, ooh, you know, that, you, that's, that's you windy do, there. That's, you know. Yeah, you, <laughs> that's right. You do feel that, um, that sense of um, greatness. Yeah, in them, yeah, yeah, right. You just kind of feel it. It's a, it's a real feeling. And um, I forget when it was. It was we, we got when Bobby and Matt, when Bobby called me and we got started. And I had a meeting with Bobby and Matt. We, we hit the ground running and 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 making the show, crafting the show to sound really authentic and and um, make sure everybody was comfortable with how the sound was going to be. Just from a from a conceptualized standpoint. You know, was this song going to be faster? Is it going to be slower? Is it going to be more aggressive? Is it going to be just like the record and things? We, we hit the ground running so hard with that. It wasn't until a couple of weeks in where I was, I walked into a room and those those five were sitting down in a room and I walked in and I sort of had a little moment, you know, where mm-hmm. I went, oh, and it brought me right back to uh, December 23rd of 1984. Yep. St. Paul Civic Center, I okay. believe it was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it was... And it was, uh, and, and incidentally, I told that story about Bobby. I finally told Bobby, I said, Hey, I got a, you threw a drumstick. I reached out for it and it hit me right in the, right in the forehead. <laughs> I didn't even get the drumstick Hilarious. at that show. No, I didn't. I said, yeah, you did, man. I got hit in the forehead with the drum. <laughs> so someday I might just throw a drumstick throw at him. Payback. <laughs> payback. Just 
Uh, but yeah, you 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 get the feeling that you're you, you get that sense of greatness in them, and 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 certain artists do that. They still will leave an leave an imprint uh, of that largesse. You know, you feel that when you're around them because they have they're voluminous in their um, in what they have to offer, and it's really this band that band could do anything. All anybody has to do is watch. Oh, what is that eighty-five concert oh, from Audi? Syracuse. Syracuse, yeah, yeah. Syracuse, yeah. You watch. You show any kid that. You show John Williams that. Somebody corner John Williams at his next <laughs> session when he's recording an orchestra and say, "John, we're going to take a two and a half hour break and watch this concert." Okay. He won't. He won't leave the room. You know, you kids. You're arrested. You're literally. You're just arrested. You're locked in and watching this, and you can't believe you're watching that yeah. that high level of art. It's so funny you keep mentioning John Williams. That 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 was the the very first album I ever got was what? Uh, Star Wars: A New Hope, the soundtrack. Same with me. Same with really? me. <laughs> <The> <laughs> final, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yep, yeah. yeah I, that was I, the very first record. I think maybe I may have had a well because my parents may have had a Jackson's album, old you know old sort of thing. But the one I first actually you got, got yeah. was what was John your first CD? Do you remember your first CD? Oh, my first CD. Wow. Uh, I was late to CDs. I was a cassette guy forever, so I, 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 can't, I can't really remember. It may have been, it was either a Prince album or it could have been some random rap thing that I did not remember at the time. Mine was the, the soundtrack to Rambo First Blood Part 2. <laughs> who, who does the music for that? Um, who did that? Jerry Gold, Goldstein or Gold? it might have been Jerry Goldsmith. Yeah, Goldsmith. I, I'm I'm not sure. I'd have to I'd have to look that up. But it sounds like a Jerry Goldsmith. I don't want to give somebody credit where they. It was great though. I mean, I love hey. I love a lot. Of, I'm I've been into a phase where I've been listening to soundtracks. Like I from still start do that. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> One of my favorite right now uh, is James Bond Moonraker. <laughs> oh, that's a good. I'll have to go on that. Is that on a? That must be on a streaming service yeah, somewhere. Yeah, it's on the streaming yeah. services. Yeah, but God, and, and that has to do with uh, who's James Bond again? That's um, who, this who was scored Roger, all. That? Uh, well, I have, I have to look it up. Now. He did all the James Bond. Um, uh, I gotta look it I, up. Not. Yeah, can you look that up? Because that um, he uh, he had a very interesting. Um, uh, he had a very in his name's on his. Um, uh, I'll get it here in a second. Yeah. It, uh, you know, some he, tip of your tongue type of things. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, he's um, a, a British composer and I heard him. I remember turning on um, uh, NPR once and it was in the middle of an interview and it sounded like this really pompous. John Barry. John Barry. John Barry. And it sounded like a really pompous British guy with a really heavy, thick accent. And he. And he was laying it on thick, and he was saying, "Yes, yes, yes, yes." Of course, when when I, when I school these, and I, and I thought, "Who is this guy?" And then he started to talk about James Bond. I said, "Oh no, that's John Barry, isn't it?" And he said the most interesting thing to me that <clears throat> he said every James Bond theme is in a minor key. Interesting. And he said because the character itself was so campy and so cartoonish that to do anything in a major key would have made it mm. um, just double up on the campiness. So he said he always he always led, he always wrote that sort of diminished and minor key thing. And when you think about it, it worked. And and I used to love when Prince would, during Kiss, uh, I think on the nude tour, Prince would play the James Bond theme on the guitar. Oh, wow. But during the middle of um, Kiss, I'm pretty sure it was Kiss. And... Um, and so he, I'm sure that that sense of diminish that that sense of minor key, uh, you know how that sounds a little mm -hmm. scary and mm -hmm. and 
and that that tends to those sort of layers sort of get to us. Yeah, I, you know, I, I actually have a, a huge love for earlier soundtrack albums. Like, I mean, obviously it comes from that John Williams because because I, you know, I pretty much have all John Williams stuff. Uh, but it, I love those seventy ones. I started really getting into John Barry a few years ago because I just never really listened to it. But there are s- certain elements in some of the pieces that are like funky to me. And then there's like, I'm like, God, yeah. this stuff is really good. But um, I really appreciate, though, just the different feels that they give. And I maybe because I, I grew up on what we would, some would call campy. I, I don't know. I guess I'm they're just a part of me. I don't see them that way. Like to me, I legitimately see Roger Moore as James Bond. I can see now with my older eyes that he was hamming it up. But back then, oh, I yeah. took it deadly serious. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it, it all has to do with the with the era, doesn't it? And you have sure. to experience it in that era. One of my favorite uh, composers, lesser known than clearly than John Williams and some of the bigger, biggies, Lalo Schifrin and things like that, is um, is a guy named Jerry Fielding. And for jazz, for, mm-hmm. for musicians to listen to Jerry Fielding, who did um, – as a matter of fact, for for Lee Helms' band, I I turned on in the dressing room. I turned on uh, Dirty Harry, Dirty uh, the Dirty Harry soundtrack. Yeah. Yep. Right, Clint Eastwood. It's got to go back to like 72, 73, 74, whenever Dirty Harry first came out. And you can turn on the Dirty Harry soundtrack, and it, it is amazing. It's serious heavy jazz, and all the chase yeah. scenes were jazz and bongos and trumpet solos, and and it's not done like that anymore. Everything is. Is yeah. scored a different way. It's scored in one room, but these guys, you know, they they were they were putting Clint Eastwood wanted jazz underneath mm-hmm. his Dirty mm-hmm. Harry, and those are yeah, they're really fun. It's fun to get in that sort of cycle, you know, where you listen to funk heavily for a few months, or you'll get into a Queen. I've been going through this Queen phase, okay. so it's Queen every day, and we're singing Queen in the house. And my daughters know all the lyrics to all the Queen songs, um, and and uh, I like getting into those phases of soundtracks and listening to them. Yeah. Really getting into it and uh, going back to the queen thing a little bit and i know they have the the um elton john one is coming next i don't know if you've seen the trailers for that i saw the trailer the other day i was at the movies and that music came on and i was actually in a uh adobe digital theater i don't know if you've experienced that yet but they have like 50 speakers on the ceiling or something so the whole room just but that elton john came on and said bing and I mean that whole room I was like whoa I never heard it like this and I was like I have to see that movie like it just uh, I was like I have a prediction about that because I watched both trailers and it looks like watch, it's a, almost a surreal fantasy take on him, but but go ahead. It, yeah, if you if you if you watch the trailers one after the other, you watch Bohemian Rhapsody and then you watch the Elton John uh, trailer. I have a, my prediction is that, um, and usually I don't like prognostication, but uh, I predict that that movie will fall flat in many ways. Mm-hmm. I think it won't be. Number one, the artist is still alive. Number two, so they can reflect on it and talk about it, mm-hmm. and they can say, well, yes, they got this right and this wrong, and. Um, and also that the um, it's just hard to to capture uh, the life and be truthful of someone uh, like like they did for Bohemian Rhapsody. They they of course they took liberties in certain right. timeline issues of timeline, and they did that for dramatic um, uh, effect. And but it, to be able to cast the right person in the right role and make the band look all the same and get everything so right and. Queen's music just lends itself toward the theatrical, 
right? Because it was part musical theater and part mm-hmm. rock, mm-hmm. part funk. You know, when you hear another one bites the dust, I don't know of anyone that, that doesn't move to that. And so uh, I, I, it, it will be hard, and which leads me into thinking that it will be extremely – I mean, it didn't work out too well. Didn't they do a James Brown – there was a movie about yeah, James, James Brown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get on up. A few years ago. Yeah, mm-hmm. get on up. And, and I, don't know, I don't know how well that did – how well it was received or how well it did. I don't did, think did it, you see the movie. I didn't see it. I, I, I liked it when it came out. Uh, admittingly yeah, that, you know, it, like you're saying, it's hard to capture the essence of guys like that, you know, and do it right. There's almost genie in a bottle, but I actually yeah. did feel at the time that I was like, you know what? They got James for what they could yeah. do. But I, but I hear yes. what you're saying. I kind of get where you're going. Yeah. With it. Try, trying to replicate that or just and and trying to and ultimately I'm sure a Prince biopic a Prince movie will be made that will be right. first of all the, the casting is going to be nearly impossible right it's going to be nearly impossible to cast because it w- will be looked at so it'll be so scrutinized it will be so difficult to land that role and get that that look and that feel and that that all the little minutia, all the looks that he had, right. you know, he had a bunch of tells and you have to get all those right. Then you have to capture the music right. Then you have to involve, you know, in Bohemian Rhapsody, Queen was involved heavily. Brian May mm-hmm. and, and Roger Taylor, anyway, were involved in every aspect of it. So to try and get all that right is next to impossible. And they did it with uh, the, the Bohemian Rhapsody. And to do a Prince movie, I can just, I, that has got to be a long road to hoe. You know, that's not yeah. going to be easy. And, and with the Bohemian movie, that production riddled with with issues right like you know they had to get rid of the director <laughs> during the yes, movie yes i mean so it it's definitely not an easy thing in terms of it being a print so i always think like when i when i saw the queen movie and i was blown away when i saw that i was like wow and that made me start thinking could they do i, I want them to do a prince movie that is just as great as this if not greater but yes the challenge is how are they going to do that like it's almost one of these impossible guys. It is to 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 capture. I would think you know when I think again, I thought that with James Brown. I was like, who's going to play James and it not come off as a spoof or making yeah. fun of it or something? Who who could play Michael Jackson and it not come off as you know off so off the mark or it's just, you know it's comical. it has to be an it has to be an unknown. You have to get an unknown because when you get a known um, performer they're going to want to bring themselves somehow. They just always bring themselves to the role and they bring their brand to the role. And you always see them as them doing someone else. Yeah. Well, see, that's, that's a question because, you know, I would bring up Ray, like Ray Charles mm-hmm. with, uh, no, that's good. Jamie, that's a good Jamie point. Fox. But I don't know. Is it because at least, you know, for a lot of us, we were so removed from when Ray was in, you know, we know who he was, but none of us were, we didn't know it, know it. Like we sort of know a prince or some of our later people. So I don't yes. know if you have to wait a longer time. So like when they do hire somebody for prince, it isn't so like just off the heels of like, we know exactly every little minutia about prince and his look that they could sort of bring in somebody else. And it's like, okay, there's been enough time now. I mean, just right. with, like with queen, I mean, to some degree, I knew what Queen was, obviously. You know, I knew the music, but I was a little removed, so I don't know how his hardcore fan base took that movie and if they felt like he got it right. To me, it looked like they got it right. I mean, just looking at that Live Aid performance. Yeah, and, and I mean, it's you know, been what? It's been 25 years or something yeah. since they were in the 
really in the throes of it. So, yeah, it'll be it. it, it but it's hard not to imagine that some night, that, that, excuse me, at some time they won't be recreating the the the, the night of the piano. Uh, uh, wow, yeah, that would be thing, interesting. You know? So that that'll be done at some point in the future by other people. That maybe the the artist that's going to play him isn't even born yet. You know, that's kind of how that works. Mm-hmm. Um, wow, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, think about that. <laughs> um, speaking of that. Obviously, you recorded that concert, the original. Uh, was that the 21st? Of January? That was the 21st, 21st January, January 21st. Uh, recorded those shows. Have you heard any, and I don't know how, you know, again, you can say, I don't know what it is. Is there ever, has there any been any talk of late to try and get those to be released or just even a conversation of the status of you know. That that I don't have any insight onto that into that because I'm not in contact with the people uh, that would do that. But they're the people that are that are that will ultimately bring all the recordings that people want to hear out to people are engaged in it quite a task. I mean that's quite quite a lot to ask you know, to to take an artist's entire um, career in a vault and have to digitize it go through it make choices lay out a plan that's just going to take it's going to take time to do that it, it's i'm sure they're working very uh diligently and thoughtfully on a timeline i know people want to hear everything now you know we live in an age of now right. everything's right. now you can you can find out who who did the the soundtrack just by doing it while we're talking you know and and uh, so th- those things have to be those have to be unfolded the, the way you'd unfold something properly and it has to come out and I'm sure they've got a plan that has to do with a timeline and release things sort of in order. And, and you got, first of all, you have to collect it all, which they've done and you have to go through it, which they're doing. And then you have to release it as, as you want to, but it has to be done in a certain, in a certain way that makes sense to uh, the legacy and the, and the estate. What did you think of the, uh, I believe it was called piano on a microphone, 1983 you know what i haven't heard it oh okay i haven't heard it i should i'm sure it's on a streaming service but i just haven't listened to it um i think it's great that that they're getting out stuff that's so personal um he he ended on um uh he ended doing his career solo which i think is really beautiful the only thing i wish that could have happened and and maybe i'm wishing it for them is i wish he would have uh, done done a show with the revolution. I I, I think that'd be fun to have seen that kind of show happen. But um, for it to, for his career to end on a on a solo note, I think is beautiful. It's very fitting because he he came in as a solo performer, doing it all himself, and then he he ended doing it all. So we all have that arc, right? We all have an arc to our life, and that was his arc was meant to end then, and it was. Um, and I'm I'm just glad it it. Uh, that he got to it. And so for them to release something that was essentially the same um, from what I understand, it wasn't a live though. That was studio sessions, right? Yeah. It was like him, him and his home studio sort of re- okay. rehearsing. Act, All right. Essentially. So probably more informally and, uh, or working out ideas or something that, 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 um, there's nothing like that sort of intimate, especially with Prince, hearing the intimacy. We all like the big numbers, right? You love the confetti and the guitar solos and stuff, but um, he's a very personal artist. So to put him in headphones and have him right inside you as, you, as you're playing him, there's nothing like that, so I'm sure. I, I'll actually have to go listen to that today after we're done. Uh, it's, it's, I mean, obviously to say it's worth a listen is an understatement, but I think it's actually really, it's a very interesting 
thing to listen to because uh, you get to hear him sort of like thinking and coming up with things. And oh, I, see. I just love hearing just like the soulfulness of just just kind of him just doing him. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. you know, and then there's a lot of playfulness in it as well, which, which is really cool. Obviously, it's a very earlier Prince, but. Yeah, but that, you know, that I loved his uh, keep. I, I said it before that I think piano was his. I love his his ability to express himself on piano more than any instrument and uh, more than drums, more than bass or guitar or, or even acoustic. It's it's um, and even more, you know, probably equal to his voice, uh, his expression and how he moved on the keyboard from one song to another, especially during that piano show was pretty remarkable to be able yeah. to. Um, that's where the virtuosic uh, being a virtuoso is is uh, important for people and young people to understand is that that's not easy to do. It takes a lot of thought to move back and forth and saying, um, which was a pretty autobiographical show. Now, remember, I didn't know it was going to be autobiographical, those two shows, until they were happening. And in the meeting the night before, the the several hour meeting that we had about the the set list, um, the set list itself didn't look like it was autobiographical. Mm. Um, we just talked about, okay, let's do this. And can you do an effect here on me there? And and then I, I'm going to go into this and then we'll do that. And I think I'm going to change that. Or I might do a David Bowie tribute and I might do this. And, you know, he, he there are a lot of, there are a few maybes sprinkled in there as well. But then when he started the show and he spoke in, interstitially in between things to hear, I said, oh, I see where this is going. You know, it was pretty apparent pretty quickly that it was autobiographical, which is beautiful because it was a surprise to everyone except Prince, which is, uh, which is great. It's always nice to be surprised. That's why I love the after shows. You know, the, as much as I love mixing the shows with mm-hmm. him, it's those after shows that were nail biters for me because I never knew how good the gear was. When we were on a concert, it was easy because we, I was, we knew the control, the amount of control we had of all the gear, that things were going to work. But we had to, I especially, I had to do half those after shows. Um, I have a list somewhere of the after shows um, that I that I mixed and uh, over his career and. They were always nail biting because I had to. Uh, I'm sure about half of those I mixed monitors from front of house position, right? So it was, mm. I had to do many things at once. And a lot of times there wasn't a lighting engineer in those clubs. So I would just turn the lighting board and I would mix and then do all the punches, do all the accents and punches. Wow. Or if there was a lighting engineer, I'd say, Where are the punches? The all white. So I could hit those on those because they didn't know the show, right? So I had to sort of do a lot of things there. It, it, it was uh, Dr. Octopus, as I like to say. <laughs> I had to have eight arms to, to do those. But those were a lot of fun because you never knew what was going to happen. That was Prince at his best. Those after shows are, are remarkable. Mm, man. Is there any opportunity that you would, um, <clears throat> and maybe you do this, but just listening to you talk about, you know, being a front of house engineer as a, if there was a person that was trying to get into this field or is just starting out, like, is there an opportunity, would there ever be an opportunity for them to like really soak in some game from Scotty ball? <laughs> like, well, I, I, I've, I've thought about, I just, someone just contacted me, uh, about two, I think, um, midweek here a few days ago, two or three days ago and said, Hey, will you ever do a master class? Ah. And, um, I, I don't, um, uh, maybe. I mean, I, I would, it's, I, I do have a lot of knowledge to impart to people, but I always want to make it, I don't just want it to be a, 
uh, just a bunch of stories. You know, I think a lot right. of people, okay. they all they do is string stories together. And then one time this happened, another time this happened. And that's really, I don't think it's very valuable. It's it's a little bit of candy, I think, but it's not going to feed you. Mm. You know, um, what, you're eating, what, what you, what you want to eat is something substantive and something that is actually meaningful. But when people get a hold of me and they say, hey, I'm... I'm doing this right now and I'd like to do this and how do I do that? I, I always give thoughtful responses to that because I understand what it's like to um, want to take your level of excellence and move it up. And when you mm-hmm. talk to people who've been around and surrounded and, and dipped in excellence um, and are excellent themselves at what they do, they can bring something. And I think it's incumbent upon the people that are good at what they do to pass on, uh, you know, pa- pass that on to people freely and, and make that, um, make that, Part of what you want to do at the, as, after all, at the end of your career, you want to have been respected and uh, want to do a good job and pass things on. All you have is your your um, your the level of respect that people have for you. So you want to do the right thing for the right reason. You know, there's a there's a dollar and a cent in it for everyone trying to work things like a job, right? There's always that, right. but but you you. Additionally, it's nice to when I'm asked to speak at for there's a manufacturer, uh, a sound company that I with whom I work every year and I go and speak and I don't just throw out print stories. I talk about how those things, how I'll sprinkle in print stories, but they always lead somewhere. Well, that that's important because it said for me to be ready to do this or I had mm-hmm. to be thinking musically about that. Mm-hmm. There's always a this or that involved and it, it try and bring it back to something that's actually usable by people. Um so that they can actually, um, there are the stories, there, there are good stories that have nothing to do with education, but it's maybe someday I'll, I'll, um, put something together. Yeah. I mean, even just like, you know, as I would imagine there is a lot of gear and tech involved in, yeah. in what you do. And there's always new things coming out and Hey, how did you do this? Or, you know, how did this interface? Or you spoke about even just like, you didn't know the equipment would be the state of the equipment at this, you know, and an after show of is, is it different from what you guys normally use or, you right. know, those sort of things too. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, um, the, the, the good thing I think about me or the thing I'm of which I'm very proud is that I'm not a, despite what I do for a living, I'm not a gearhead. I'm not a techie like that. Okay. I don't, I don't, I think the magic always lies within the people mm. and, and the performance rather than the, uh, in the gear, you know, you, you, you want to pay for the ear, not for the gear, right? That's you, you, you don't Say have that to get one more time <laughs> that, uh, you pay for the gear. You don't want to pay for the gear. Pay, so pay for the ear. Don't pay for the gear. Mm. That was accidental. When I said that one to, to someone one time when I was negotiating something and, and I said, Hey, you don't need to spend all this money on this gear. You know, just, you know, I won't need this and this and this. I, in that way, in that regard, I, I very much have held on to my, um, my roots of being with Prince is that Prince didn't need anything mm. fancy. He could have a rented guitar and a rented amp and still make it sing. And, and that's something I've held, held on to. Some people like a binky, like a, a pacifier, they need certain mm-hmm. gear with them when they do their job. I need this bass or I need this amp or I need this soundboard. I need these plugins. And I don't think it has to do with that. I mean, it doesn't have to do with that. You can, I mean, what did there, I, Speaking about Queen, what did Queen record on? They, right, yeah. A twenty-four track recorder. They they doubled up all their vocals. They shoved them down. They kept bouncing them down to the last two tracks, probably, and they still sound great because it's in the performance, right? Freddie Mercury used a a, a, 
I think I forgot what it's called, the Shure 565 or something. It, essentially a Shure SM58, the most commonly right, and recognizable right. microphone on the planet. He used that live almost his entire career. And no one talks about how his how it was a bad microphone. They talk about how that he's the purest rock vocalist in history. Right? So it's always in the performance. It's not in the the gear or how it's recorded. Some people would disagree. A lot of people would disagree with me, but I, I vehemently that's one I'll stand up for. Is no, that, I, I would agree. I get a lot of people that, you know, they want to get into podcasting from they was, I gotta, do I gotta get this? I say, listen, yeah, right. just get a mic and hit record. <laughs> that's all you No, that's need. good that you tell them that because that's important because you're imparting your own excellence on them. Your your preparation for interviews and the excellence and the angles that and you have to take a guy like me who can I can tangentize better than anyone. I get off on these tangents and then you have to kind of sheepdog me back to the to what we're really talking about. That there's an art to that. There's an art to what you do. So it's it's that's the art, not the, right, the right. quality. Although I will say that for this interview I had to think Five minutes before I called, I, I thought, oh, I have to I have to find the, a good mic to speak into. Just because I know as a listener, you want to hear something that sounds good and pleasing. You don't want to have to hear somebody right. on the phone, ideally, right. right? You want a good connection and you want good uh, – because most people listen to this in, in headphones anyway. So you want you want to actually be in their head and you don't want to be talking through a uh, – so there is a little bit of tech in me, but not, not much. Um, I do it very much the way Prince did. He always called it guerrilla style. Let's do it guerrilla style. I love that. I love that. So we would just show up at these shows and just do what we could do and get get out of it what we could get and never leave anything on the table, so to speak. Just leave it all there on the stage. Wow. So, you know, sort of wrapping things up, um, Scotty, where, where, what's next for you? Is it just um, you can continue to doing uh, front of house? Uh, is there any other aspirations that you may have? Well, Dave Hampton and I have been talking about um, actually actively uh, doing exactly what you uh, had brought up a little earlier, which is getting out and speaking to people and going to different cities and and, um, speaking about not just engineering and not just about studio building or front of house engineering. It's about about almost what this uh, show is about, which is excellence and talking about – almost like a, a, a TED talk, if you will, but just talking about um, operating at a high level. And Dave, Dave and I, when you get us, you know, in the, in the same room, we can, we can bring a lot of that, um, unearth a lot of that sort of feeling. And so that we're actively working on that and trying to book something. And that's a little bit scary because it's something that I've, um, I've done front of house for so many years and, and actually had to, I'm not really a go-getter. I don't, I don't continually eat things up and do something and say, now I'm going to do this. Now I'm going to do this. I've had a sort of successful, but lazy, kind of a lazy, successful career, right? Been good at what I've done, at what I've done and been successful at it, but not really had to do a lot more than I, than I, um, was doing. And, um, but I really love working in China and I, I really like the challenge of working with Lee home because he's uh, so schooled and knowledgeable and such a musical person that um, it keeps me on my toes. This The band is phenomenal. And there's a oh, a spirit of, uh, there's an energy and a spirit to things that is um, all on the same page. Everyone's there to have a great time and it's the huge crowds and, and it's all in stadiums. So it's very exciting to do that. I'll, I'll do that as long as, as I can with the home because it's so fun. And, um, and, but also, but, but yeah, moving on and actually lecturing and then being paid to lecture, you know, t- kind of mm-hmm. trying to, you know, as, in jobs, we have to make these changes, right? Everything ends up being like the the visual I always bring up of Indiana Jones in front of that gold skull 
and he had the bag of sand and he had to <laughs> grab the skull and put the bag of sand on there. Right. We all sort of have to do that in our careers, right? We all have to, and it's scary to move from one thing to the other. So do I become a studio engineer? No, maybe not at this point in my career. Do I do front of house for yet another artist or somebody else and move tour to tour? I think I'm, I'm at the point in my career where I'm trying to educate others on how to be good at what they do, not just front of house. Okay. Which is a perfect reason to come on your program because you you do that. And I like the fact that you talk about that and talk about high level, right. operating at a high level. I appreciate that. Um, so, I, so one thing I try to do with this show, these last couple questions here, and try to make this quick, is I want to ask you to give me uh, two movies that mean whatever they mean to you. Because uh, I'm a movie guy and sometimes I, when I think about movies – they, they shape how I feel about certain things or they just may shape sometimes how I feel and they've lasted with me uh, a long time. Um, that may or may not be the case for you, but nonetheless, I'm asking this question. So uh, can you give me two movies that you really love or you would say, you know, these are these mean a lot to me? Well, the first would be Rocky. Oh, okay. um, if if people um, if people haven't everyone's heard of Rocky. Sort of, you know, and it, just yeah. because it's a big part of pop culture. But the movie Rocky, I watch a, at least once a year um, because and the reason I like it more than any of the other Rocky films is that it's uh, and I I will even show it to my daughters because um, there's nothing in there that's graphic or graphic or gratuitous. But um, the reason I like it is that he lost at the end mm. and and that he um, but he didn't care. He, it, it's really, it truly is a love story with boxing in it, right? Mm -hmm. It's not a boxing. If people say it's a boxing movie, they're just, they're just wrong. It's a, a love story that has boxing in it. And it's really, I like it because it's a very human uh, condition. You know, most people don't, uh, I don't know if I, if this is true, but I was going to say most people don't win in life at everything. Well, not at everything. Certainly you don't win everything in life and it's how you deal with the losses that really define who a person is there. I found it. I got it. Yeah, yeah. So it's not winning in life that defines you. It's how you deal with the losses. To me, the, the most interesting story is never the guy in the end zone spiking the ball on the last play of the game or sinking the three pointer that wins the game. It's the guy who he beat or the, the person who he beat to make that possible, right? That's the interesting story. The person that got burned on the route that, you know, is, has their helmet off at the 20 yard line. And that's what Rocky was. Rocky, but Rocky didn't care that he lost. It's important to, to, there's humility in that story of losing and being what is, what some people would see as a loser, but he, he ultimately, it, it, it's very meaningful because he found love in that, in that movie. And I think that's important. The second one is, is an easy one for me, which is the natural a Robert Redford uh, movie oh, about a okay. uh, uh, baseball player. And he's, that fits in with the theme today is that he's the best. And he always says in the movie, I'll, I just want people at, after I'm done to say, there goes there goes Roy Hobbs, the best that ever was. And so it, it, he just wanted to be great. He just wanted greatness, and he wanted to be excellent. It didn't matter. It didn't matter. Uh, it, he just wanted to be known for being the best that ever was. And so, okay. I don't think I've actually seen that movie. I oh, that's heard it. of it. I got to watch it then. It's beautiful. It's got. I think Randy Newman did the score, so that's another one to listen okay. to because the the musical score is so unlike anything Randy Newman had done, and it's just so. Oh, it's they have that era down. You know, it's really a beautiful film to look at, and it's um and the the message in it is uh, 
is that he just wanted to be the best that ever was. And it's, it's really um, uh, quite uh, special. So between Rocky and The Natural, you kind of got uh, two good ones there. It's nothing, nothing too crazy, but it's, uh, they both celebrate humility and excellence. Yeah, it's so funny. The, you know, I don't want to go on a tangent of this because we easily could, but it's interesting that the Rocky, I guess, franchise moves almost, it moves away from that original movie like it was really mm-hmm. about him winning the fight or the later ones become all about the spectacle of you know the fight but i think it it starts it goes to transition back to that original movie with maybe like um i would actually say the creed movies i don't know if you've seen yes. them. they sort of yeah. really have that at least the first one really sort of comes back to i think yeah it has to have it's going to have the fight spectacle of it now but it really was more about the relationship between the, the people. Sylvester Stallone is a is a great artist. Um, he um, and I think what he was trying to say, uh, it took him many many films to say it. But I think he was trying to get back to that. And I think he did not through Rocky's experience, but the experience of the son of his first opponent. Mm-hmm. And he he finally made his way back. And some of that was just money in the middle. Um, Rocky four and five, I can say for sure. Um, but when he got to Rocky Balboa, which I think was a sixth one, was, and then he, that was a good one. That was a good one yeah. because he he started to make his way back toward the humility of getting back to what he was, and he started to feel lost in his life. And I know this is all fictional that we're ending on a note of fiction, but so is the music business, right? Right. Everyone who puts Prince songs in their car every day and might still cry thinking about Prince and losing Prince, everything he did was was real, but he was talking about and experiencing things that were fictional for the most part. So we live in a world of fiction. We just we use it as art. Art is well. I think it was told. Uh, was it um, Picasso that said, "Art is a lie that tells us the truth." Mm. <laughs> so we 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 ingest this art. And then it tells us the truth about ourselves. Yeah. And I think some of the best are, you know, for me, I, I am a sci-fi fan. A lot of the best science fiction is it may take place in this other world or whatever, but mm. the themes of it are entrenched in our reality. Like, and I think that's what makes it relatable. It's like, right. It can be out here looking crazy, but the same sort of stuff there, sort of the themes of what's going on are themes that, you know some of the issues going on in our own life. I mean, you can even look at uh, I think, and we're gonna stop because I again we could go crazy. But mm-hmm. like some of the original zombie movies, I think were successful right. because they were actually about a lot of other things. With some of these characters we're dealing with amidst mm-hmm. you know these zombie apocalypse situations. Well, of course, and that's and that's that would speak to some of the shows that are popular now. Exactly. And how you know it's just the setting may be different, but it's always about those. Those things are always about internal struggle. I think most yeah. of them, yeah. most stories are. All right, woo, Scotty. Sorry, I know it's hard to end because it, <laughs> we can just go on forever, and I'm sure that we lost some people along the way when I went off on one of my oh, nice. tangents. But uh, but uh, uh, I appreciate you very much, and and um, I'm always uh, happy to speak with you and and talk as much as you want me to. Oh man, I appreciate it. Now, where can people find you online if they want to follow you? Uh, different platforms here. Uh, it's it's easy. I'm I'm pretty much at, I'm I'm at scottybaldwin.com. S c o t t i e baldwin. Scottybaldwin.com. My email is on there somewhere. Um, 
which is Scotty Baldwin at me.com. And then um, I think I'm just at Scotty Baldwin on uh, Twitter. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And uh, same with Instagram. That's, you know, Instagram is more personal. It's just, it's a, it's, I think most of us get us to a certain point in our Twitter or, or Instagram use. And then we go, oh man, I should have separated, <laughs> right? I should have separated my business and my personal. So Twitter, I usually keep things about music and about um, the industry and, and, uh, and Instagram is just more of more for things that I, I'm not, a, I'm not an over poster. I might be an over talker, but I'm, I'm not an over poster on either of those two. Yeah. All right. Well, cool. Post on. We would definitely check those out and follow you. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to appreciate you for listening and giving us your time. Again, check us out at podcastjuice.net. Uh, go to our website and click on the gear uh, link there and you can get your work it like a job t-shirt and hoodies we've uh, sold quite a few so far already so i'm very appreciative of that like i always say work it like a job we'll see you next time peace thank you for listening to the work it like a job podcast check us out at work it like a job.com or podcastjuice.net be sure to click on the gear tab and get your official work it like a job t-shirt